Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. You're listening to An Amber A Day, the podcast. I'm Amber Fisher, a functional nutritionist in San Antonio, Texas. And on this podcast, we discuss everything fertility-related, diet-related, functional nutrition-related, the works. So today, what I want to talk to everyone about is it is September, which means it's Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month. And that's a month uh, in awareness that's very close to my heart because I am a survivor of gynecological cancer. I had endometrial cancer. And uh, so the women that I work with primarily and who listen to this podcast and follow me on social media tend to um, have higher risk factors for these types of diseases. So today I want to talk about how you can know that you're at a higher risk and take care of yourself because this type of cancer is becoming more common and it's especially becoming more common in young women. And one of the issues with it is that it's traditionally a cancer that happens to women post-menopause. So a lot of doctors are still not screening young women for this type of cancer. And it can be absolutely devastating if it's let go too long. So we'll talk about my story in a little bit. And then we'll also talk about you know, your risk factors, how you can know if you're at a higher risk, how you can approach diet with these types of conditions to be the healthiest that you can be. Um, and then we'll also talk about signs and symptoms that there may be something wrong and you may need to get checked out. So we're going to go over that whole thing. And a lot of this is based on um, my own, you know, personal experience with cancer. So keep in mind that none of this is intended to diagnose or treat any illness. I'm not a medical doctor, so you do need to see a medical professional for any of your medical concerns. This is just for educational purposes. Uh, so with that said, I always start the podcast off with a little um, what's going on with Amber moment. So uh, what's going on with me is mostly the same old stuff. I'm just working. It's finally September. That I'm really excited because this is actually uh, going to be episode 20 of the podcast. I have... Um, one other episode that needs to get published before this, so um, I may go ahead and publish it early. I wanted to get this out for Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month, but this is episode 20 uh, that I've recorded, so I'm excited. I've only been doing this for two years, guys. Finally got to episode 20. As those of you who've been listening a while know, it's been a crazy couple of years for me. Probably the biggest changes I've ever experienced have happened in these last two years. So I've been through... Um, IVF. I've been through uh, opening a new office, fertility treatments, pregnancy, having a preemie and the NICU experience, having a recurrence of cancer, a hysterectomy, oophorectomy, and now it's like, and COVID. 
So I know you've all been experiencing a lot of stuff. I, everyone that I've talked to this year has been going through something. Like we're all going through stuff. Not just the COVID experience, but extra stuff on top of it. It has been a hard year for everyone. So uh, I don't know what's going on with that, but hopefully it ends soon, guys. So that's what's going on with me. Um, what's going on with Calvin is he says mama now. So my life is complete. I've done my job. Um, I'm so excited that he can say mama. And he comes, and when I come in to get him from the crib, he's like, mama. So it's so cute. Uh, but anyway, that's what's going on with that. So on to our topic today, which is estrogen dominance and endometrial cancer risk factors. So first, let's talk a little bit about endometrial cancer, what it is. So uh, those of you who have a uterus, if you don't know all the parts of your reproductive organs, I would recommend taking a little primer on, you know, figuring out where's your cervix, where's your uterus, where are your fallopian tubes. It's important to know all this stuff. And, uh, you know, historically in our country, we have not done great sex education. We haven't done great, um, you know, uh, health education on just female bodies. So it's important to know that stuff. And I also think it's really important to remove the stigma of talking about menstruation and bleeding and ovaries and saying all those words because, uh, you know, I'm at the point where I've been through so much stuff with my reproductive organs that like, it doesn't bother me to talk about that anymore. Like I'll tell you about my bleeding history. I'm going to actually. Um, but a lot of women are very embarrassed about it. And I do remember being in the same boat, being very embarrassed to talk about um, my periods and stuff. Like it's like a secret that women have periods. Um, so we need to bust that stigma for sure because what's happening in a lot of cases, and I've seen women like this in my practice, is women are suffering more now from hormonal issues and infertility issues and stuff surrounding their reproductive organs. They're at higher risks of cancer than they used to be. And um, they're too embarrassed to talk about it or to go get it checked out. So, um, or to advocate for themselves. And they don't know what they're advocating for. So if that's you and you're, you're hoping for some help, like figuring out how to advocate for yourself, I hope that this podcast um, helps you. And uh, if you have questions and things like that, you can always feel free to email the podcast. And if I can help you, I will. Um, so... With that said, risk factors for endometrial cancer. So I'm just going to pull up here on my computer. Um, I pulled up some basic risk factors from the internet, right? From one of these cancer websites. Because when you read this stuff, a lot of times it's like, it doesn't sound like you or it sounds like something that everybody's going through, right? So we see things like risk factors for endometrial cancer. Obesity. Okay. Obesity is a risk factor for almost every chronic disease or cancer, right? So it's like, okay, I'm obese, but, you know, am I really at risk for this? Or is it just because, you know, being obese, they put me on that list of everything. Uh, things that affect hormone levels, like taking estrogen after menopause. So there you go with the menopause. Keep in mind that this type of cancer is much more common in women post-menopause. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that. And, you know, if you're a woman who's postmenopause or perimenopausal and you're worried about your risk factors as well, we'll talk about some of that stuff too. But I'm primarily talking to young women in this podcast because that's where I was when I was diagnosed. Um, so taking estrogen after menopause, then birth control pills. So, you know, a lot of us are on birth control pills. Um, 
number of menstrual cycles over a lifetime. So what this is indicating is like people who have irregular menstrual cycles, who have fewer than normal menstrual cycles. Pregnancy, uh, certain ovarian tumors, and polycystic ovarian syndrome, so PCOS. Use of an IUD, age. And when they say age, they mean age as in postmenopausal age, so you know, 50, 50 55 or above. Uh, diet and exercise, so if you eat poorly, um, if you don't exercise. Type 2 diabetes goes along with obesity in many cases. Family history, and then having other types of estrogen-based cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer in the past, puts you at higher risk. Having had radiation for any of that puts you at high risk. And then having had endometrial hyperplasia in the past puts you at risk. And many women with PCOS have experienced a diagnosis for endometrial hyperplasia. That's usually one of the first signs that there's something wrong in there. But many women also haven't. And so they think, hey, that can't happen to me. Um, I certainly didn't think it would happen to me. So that's why I wanted to do this podcast. So those are the like basic risk factors. But what you'll notice that all of those things have in common, or I notice as a functional nutritionist, all those things have in common, is the underpinning thing that holds them together is a risk of estrogen dominance. Estrogen dominance is this subtle condition that um, has become so prevalent in our society amongst women. Um, men are experiencing some of this as well. You know, we have a kind of a issue with men these days and having enough testosterone, right? And there's a lot of male factor infertility. But primarily, we're looking at women here. Women have much higher risk factors for having too much estrogen than they do for having too much of any other hormone. I read an article, a research article the other day as I was putting together some notes for today and stuff. And the title of the article was something like Estrogen, uh, the Necessary Evil of Human Fertility, which is such a beautiful way to put it because every function in our body relies on estrogen to some degree. Estrogen is extremely important for our quality of life, for our health. It's not simply a matter of, you know, uh, like let's take this person, let's, stop this body from producing any estrogen at all. It's a matter of looking at what are the ratios with these things. So estrogen is very important for human health. When women are surgically put into menopause and not given estrogen replacement or when they go through menopause naturally and they don't do any hormone replacement, that's when a lot of chronic diseases like uh, type 2 diabetes and um, osteoporosis and things like that come up. Those have been associated with little to no estrogen in the system. However, on the other end of the spectrum, having too much estrogen is the underpinning of almost every cancer. So there's a big, um, a big problem that we have with estrogen that we're still really trying to suss out because estrogen isn't just created by our ovaries. A lot of women think, okay, my ovaries are making this estrogen. They're the problem. So I need to um, either have those removed or we need to regulate those ovaries and then that will fix the underlying issue. But unfortunately, when it comes to estrogen, your body can pro produce as many types of estrogen and it's produced from more than just the ovaries. Um, body fat tissue 
produces estrogen. So if you have excess body fat, that's one of the reasons why you're at a higher risk because if your body fat is producing estrogen and your ovaries are producing estrogen and you have irregular cycles or something like that, that's a huge risk factor for for endometrial cancer because you're not getting that balancing effect of progesterone. Estrogen and progesterone work in a dance with each other and it's more complicated than just estrogen and progesterone, of course, but very simply, they complement each other. Progesterone helps dull the effects of estrogen and prepare the lining to be shed properly. Progesterone is only produced after the body ovulates. So after you release an egg, they call that the corpus luteum. So that's the air. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. was released from that area produces progesterone until potentially a pregnancy if if um if there's a embryo that latches on in there it'll start making its own progesterone through the placenta and stuff um but until then the ovary produces it so it's very important during an average menstrual cycle for there to be an ovulation if there's not there's no est- there's no progesterone happening right and this is why for most women who don't ovulate they won't have periods regularly they'll have withdrawal bleeds here and there, they might ovulate once in a while, but it's not something that's happening on a consistent basis. And over time, it can get worse where that estrogen is like a wave that's just overcoming everything else. Uh, Having other issues, but still having regular periods can still be a risk factor for this. So it's more common, like there's definitely a connection between having PCOS and not ovulating and getting endometrial cancer. Um, Not every woman who has PCOS and and doesn't ovulate and doesn't have periods is going to get endometrial cancer. It doesn't work like that. There's just a special lucky few of us that it happens to. But um, it is, you know, you're at much higher risk. And they're starting to discover that more and more because a lot of young women are being diagnosed with endometrial cancer um, who have PCOS. And because PCOS is becoming more common, endometrial cancer is becoming more common, if you follow me. So, um, but just because you have regular periods doesn't mean that you don't have this issue. Because what we know about um, estrogen is that, you know, it can build up even in a woman who's cycling normally. Um, if she's got excess body fat. If you are a woman who has uh, really heavy periods, um, clotting during your periods, they're really painful, that's a big sign that there's something wrong with your estrogen and perhaps you have a dominance of it. And so you can build these estrogen dominances too without excess body fat. Um, They can come environmentally. So there are a lot of things in our environment that we call xenoestrogens. And those are, um, they kind of... uh, come into the body through things like plastic, for example. Plastic has xenoestrogens in it, and those estrogens um, 
fill the receptor sites and then there's an overload of estrogen in the body. Um, they can come from, it can come from other mechanisms like for example if gut health is not um, where it needs to be and there's a lot of constipation um, or the digestive process is not happening fully. Estrogen is detoxed through the stool so that's how the body gets it out and if that stool is sitting around in there and getting reabsorbed um, that continues coming back into the bloodstream and it can cause a buildup over time. So there's many different ways, but what we do know and what I have seen in my practice is that this is very common. Estrogen dominance is very, very common. Um, so that puts you at a higher risk of developing endometrial cancer if you're not taking care of yourself and you're not watching your weight, what you eat, um, all that kind of stuff. This is my big soapbox about weight because, you know, obviously I am a nutritionist, so I help people lose weight. And people do come to me purely to want to lose weight. At this point in my practice, I don't do a ton of that anymore because I'm starting to specialize. But fundamentally, I'm a nutritionist, so I am interested in weight loss. Um, so, you know, I'm biased here. But from what we have been taught from what we read in the research, there are huge connections between having excess body fat to a large degree. I'm not talking about, you know, you've got 10 pounds to lose or even 20 pounds to lose. If you are significantly overweight more than that, there are a lot of, you know, research studies that have found that it puts you at higher risk of a lot of different diseases and disorders. We've gotten to a place in our society where we don't like to admit that and we don't want that to be true. So we find ways to kind of skirt around it or, you know, we talk about like body positivity and stuff like that. And I'm all for body positivity. I don't think people should hate their bodies. Um, I don't think they should be disgusted with their bodies. They should be proud of their bodies and what they do for them. However, um, that doesn't mean that we give up trying. Um, and if you find that you are trying and you are doing everything that you think is right, but it's still not working, that indicates that there's a deeper metabolic issue and you probably need some professional help with it because there is no reason that um, most people, even with thyroid issues, even with some of these other issues, PCOS, there's no reason that they shouldn't be able to lose weight. Might take a little longer, but it's possible. Um, and so focusing on weight, you know, I know that that rubs people the wrong way, especially when you're dealing with PCOS because you know how much more difficult it is to maintain your weight. Those of you who see me in person, you know that I'm not a, like a skinny twig, okay? I have PCOS and I struggle with my weight too. Now, I, I'm still in the normal weight range and I have been for a long, long time, but you know, it's a, it's a battle for me. It's a struggle for me. I don't lose weight like other people do. So it is something that um, that is important to focus on without beating yourself up about it. There's a balance there. Um, so we don't want to pendulum swing in one direction or the other. If you do have that excess body fat, it is important to take care of that. So taking care of that excess body fat in a healthy way, and then eating a healthy diet um, that's beneficial for these issues. And if you know what that looks like, the weight should come off naturally on its own as well. So um, there's a lot of things that can you know, reduce the risk there, but 
fundamentally, it's very important to look at your overall health first when we're looking at whether you might have estrogen dominance and what your risk factors are. And if you do have any of those main risk factors, then you do need to be a little bit more careful and just more diligent and ask questions. So let me talk about my experience with this issue because I um, have been told many times by several doctors that I don't quote fit the bill for um, for PCOS or endometrial cancer. I don't look like the average patient. Uh, I had a good talk with my gynecological oncologist um, not too long ago where he was talking to me about how the average woman my age that he sees come in with this issue is upwards of 300 pounds. She doesn't take good care of herself. Um, and it's just one of those kind of natural progressions that happens when there's just not enough, um, there's not enough progesterone to overcome all the estrogen that's being produced, right? And, um, you know, take that with a grain of salt, of course, because I think people, not everybody takes care of themselves. That's definitely true. But also, I don't want to say that just because a woman is, you know, significantly overweight that she's not trying to take care of herself either because I do know that that goes on. And sometimes women who are um, overweight, they are not listened to and people, uh, doctors don't take them seriously about their, you know, their their concerns. So there's some of that going on with this kind of thing, but I, I trust this doctor. And so we were talking about how I don't fit the bill, um, which should be like flattering, right? Oh, you know, you don't fit the bill. So, uh, but in fact, for me, it actually worked against me in a lot of ways because I didn't look like the typical patient, so I was passed over by a lot of people. And um, I was always told it wasn't a big deal. So let me kind of go backwards and I'll tell my story. And for those of you who've heard my story, you know you can probably skip ahead a little bit if you don't wanna hear this again. Um, Cause I'm gonna start talking about diet and um, you know estrogen and how you can kind of manage that in a little bit here. But for those of you who haven't heard my story or are interested to hear it again, what happened was that from the time that I went through puberty, I never had regular cycles. Um, I have many memories of being embarrassed at school because I would be hit with these like massive um, bleeding episodes that in hindsight, I probably should have told somebody about, but I was so embarrassed. Um, that I didn't. I kept it all to myself. And um, I never knew when they were coming because I didn't have regular cycles. So I would have, you know, just these like crazy bleeds where I would just like bleed through my clothes. And then um, I didn't know when to expect it and I was never prepared. It was very traumatizing. Um, so that went on all through high school. And by the time I got to high school, I didn't really think anything of it my friends knew and they were like, oh man, you're so lucky. You know, you only have a period like once a year. And I was like, yeah, I know. Isn't that great? So I just thought like, I really did not think anything of it because, you know, in hindsight, I should have told my, my mom, I should have like had her take me to the doctor, but I didn't think it was a big deal. And I was very private about that part of my life. So I didn't talk about it. Um, so it's 100% not um, her fault because she she really didn't know and I didn't say anything. Um, I was so embarrassed to talk about that stuff. 
So throughout high school, I just didn't think it was a big deal. And when I got into college, I still kind of went with that. Um, and then in college, I started gaining a lot of weight. Um, I wasn't eating super well. I mean, it was college. And uh, at that point in my life, I was not a healthy eater. Like I do not come from a history of like always loving healthy food. Like I not, still to this day, not like a huge vegetable fan. I have to force myself to eat them, but um, you know, I like them a lot more than I used to. So uh, this was stuff that was starting to build up on me in my very early 20s there, where especially with the added body fat and I was having issues with my blood sugar stability, I was having IBS symptoms, like it wasn't a good situation. So um, my boyfriend at the time, now husband, was getting concerned about me, so he told me I needed to go to the doctor. And it was mostly he wanted me to go to the doctor about my blood, like my blood sugar dipping, which we didn't know that was what it was then, um, but you know, we knew something wasn't right. So I remember the first doctor I went to, I told him about that. And um, he was like, he called it teenage girl disease, um, which basically his explanation was when teenage girls don't eat enough or they skip meals or what have you, then they get this. Um, he did not explain blood sugar to me. He did not tell me that that's what was going on. He just said that I just needed to like eat more regular meals, which um, I was eating regular meals. I was eating every meal a day and still having this issue. So he was not very helpful. But I do recall um, him recommending that I go um, to my OB at the time to look at um, getting on birth control because I wasn't having regular periods. So I went and did that. And um, she, at that point, kind of looked at some of my symptoms and was like, okay, you have, you probably have PCOS. She didn't do any diagnostics or look at, you know, ultrasound or anything. It was just a very basic visit where she saw some facial hair and, you know, I told her about my symptoms and she said, you probably have PCOS. I said, is there anything I can do about this? And she said, no. I said, can diet play any role in this? And she said, no. So, um... So there I was, she was like, just, you know, just go on birth control so you have regular periods. And then after that, you know, um, I said, well, I have problems having kids. And she was like, no, nah, probably not. You know, you might, but um, you can address that when you get there. So here I am, I'm like 22. And I, looking back, they're probably trying to, actually, I was probably like 20, 21. They were trying not to worry me, I think, but yet... They really should have, I'm the type of person that likes all the information, right? And I like to know what are the potentials so that I can be aware. Um, but when you're young like that, they assume that you don't know enough, uh, that you're not mature enough to handle um, this kind of knowledge. They assume that it's just something that will pass, that you'll grow out of. So I went about my merry way. Well, a few years later, I was newly married and... Uh, had been kind of on and off birth control during those times trying to find one that I really liked because I got awful symptoms from most of them and so I started getting a little worried about myself I thought you know something doesn't seem right about me about what's going on I started thinking I wonder if maybe I have endometriosis or um, you know I didn't know very, I knew very little about health and fertility at that point so I was just doing a lot of googling and um I knew I had PCOS, so I was doing a lot of Googling about that. 
and kind of looking at how there were a lot of things about diet and diet playing a role. And so I was trying different, like the paleo diet and things like that. And that's actually when I first started becoming interested in nutrition was way back then. This was like 2011, 2012. So I, um, I decided to make an appointment with a reproductive endocrinologist because I wanted to talk to him about potentially looking at if I had endometriosis and if maybe he could help me figure out a way to fix my PCOS. So I didn't know at the time that there, you know, that there's no real cure for that and um, that it's it's one of those things that you just manage the symptoms and try your best to look at the root cause, but it's always going to be kind of an issue for you. Um, at least in my case. So I didn't know that at the time. I thought maybe there was some kind of, you know, I had heard about metformin and different things. And so I wanted to ask him about that stuff. And his response to me was that, you know, he couldn't look at endometriosis unless I did wanted to do like a laparoscopic surgery. And I didn't want to do that, obviously. I was very low on money. He was pretty much not interested in talking to me too much because I wasn't interested in, in doing fertility treatments yet. I was just trying to be prepared which is how I am. And many of my clients, you know, you guys are like this too. You want to be, you want to know all the facts. You want to be prepared. Um, I wanted to know what it was going to be like when I did decide to go that route, if I did decide to go that route. So I didn't get a whole lot out of him, but he did, um, you know, I told him that it had been a while since I'd had um, a period and I hadn't been on birth control. And so I, um, he recommended that we do an endometrial biopsy. Now, this was my first experience with a biopsy, and um, frankly, it traumatized me for the rest of the time that I had a uterus because I think partially because he was a man, he did not uh, think about the fact that this is a young, young, young woman um, who has not had a lot of, you know, experience with doctors and has not had a lot of things like there. Uh, I believe he did like an ultrasound first and um, the lining looked a little thick and that's why he wanted to do the biopsy. But anyway, so here he comes, this man, and to do this biopsy and then he brings a medical student in who's also a man, a young man, um, very good looking young man. So it was very embarrassing um, and awkward because I wasn't prepared for that that day, but I didn't think much of it. I thought it was just going to be like a pap and it would be fine. Well, um, it was extremely painful and um so I, I, I struggled with a lot of issues with that because I'd have many biopsies over the years. And until I had my son, they were always very painful. After I had him, they were like a breeze. But um, before I had him, they were very, very painful. So that was the start of being a little bit nervous around um, reproductive doctors and stuff and not always listening to everything that they said because I didn't feel like I was really being heard. Uh, so the diagnosis came back that it was simple hyperplasia. And if you know anything about hyperplasia, hyperplasia is when there's a proliferation of cells forming in the endometrial wall. So you've got your uterus, and then inside your uterus is the endometrium, which is like the lining of the uterus. And when the cells there start to grow faster than they should, that proliferation, they call that hyperplasia. That hyperplasia can be simple, which is the easiest kind to deal with. It can be complex, which is a little bit more tricky. And then it can be complex with atypia, which would be precancerous. Um, and then there's, you know, there's like a uh, gradient line where that is then diagnosed as endometrial cancer if it kind of crosses a certain 
if they see cancerous cells in the, the atypical cells. So at that point in time, it came back simple hyperplasia, which I know from research is very unlikely that will, it will turn into cancer at some point. So it's not his fault that he was kind of like, you know, here, he gave me some Provera, which is a synthetic progesterone. He said, take this and then go back on birth control. Okay, so I did that. Few more years pass, and at that point, we are realizing that you know it's probably we're probably going to need some help to get pregnant. It's probably not going to be one of these things where we can just like do it naturally and it'll happen. But yet, I had friends with PCOS who did have kids naturally on accident, you know, and so I thought, well, maybe it'll happen for us. So there were times when I would go off of birth control, we'd try, then we'd go back on it. It was a lot of back and forth. Finally. We ended up going to my OB again to try Clomid, um, and we did several rounds of that. It was unsuccessful, so then we moved on to a, another reproductive endocrinologist. And that's when, during all the testing for that, the hyperplasia was found again, although this time it was complex, so it had progressed, see? And um, at that point, the, the reproductive doctor, she really urged us to do IVF, because she said, look, this is concerning to me, I don't want to put you through different procedures and, and medications and stuff when you've got an environment like this. I think the safest bet is for you to wait and do IVF when you're ready to do that. Um, but first, I want you to have a little, um, little surgery, it's called a hysteroscopy, to remove some fibroids and things that she found in there and clean the lining out and go see a, gy a gynecological oncologist. So this was my first experience with an oncologist and I was devastated and scared and everything because I didn't know what was going on but I wanted some answers so I went to see this man and he was um, again not helpful he pretty much wrote me off because he said you know this is really common it's not cancer so I don't really know why you need to be here um, as long as you stay on birth control it probably won't come back and you know you'll probably be fine that was pretty much the, the answer I got from him. And I don't remember his exact words, but that was the attitude. It was like, you know, you're young, you're healthy, like you don't need to worry about this. Just take the, you know, progesterone pills and you had your hysteroscopy, so everything should be fine now. Make sure you stay on birth control and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously we weren't ready to do IVF. That was like a big blow because we were hoping to kind of do some other things that we could probably afford, but we could not afford IVF. And so we waited a few more years. We built a house. Um, I left my job thinking about going back to school to become a nutritionist. During that time, um, right about the time that we that we built the house while we were going through that, I decided to go off of birth control again. Yes, I know, you're all shaking your head. I decided to go off of it because I thought, well, you know, I'm healthy. I'm in a good place with my nutrition and everything, and I take good care of myself. So I feel like, you know, I'd like to try some of the things that I'm reading and that I'm wanting to go to school for, um, to kind of see if I can like get this problem fixed. I thought maybe I could heal myself. Um, and this is, this is the part where I always give the caveat that like there are a lot of women who do come to me with fertility type disorders and PCOS hoping that I can quote unquote heal them. That's not my job. Um, 
I won't say that it doesn't sometimes happen because there are many different reasons why women develop these fertility issues and many different reasons why PCOS happens. And there are cases where nutrition plays a much bigger role than others. And so there are cases where I've had women regain their menstrual function. I've had cases of clients get pregnant, you know, all stuff like that. It does happen. But my job fundamentally is to help you be the healthiest version of you. It's not to heal this condition um, that's happening to you because in some cases it's not healable. Um, in some cases we manage it and we do our best to be the healthiest version of ourselves. So um, the fallacy I think of a lot of stuff you read on the internet is like, you know, you see these big success stories and you're like, okay, that's going to be me. So I'm just going to eat a paleo diet and I'm going to take this, this, and this supplement. And then, you know, everything should be fine and I should get my periods back. And for the vast majority of women, it just doesn't work that way. It's much more complicated than that. And the reasons for the disorder are so complex and so subtle sometimes that you really need, um, you really need more help than just some article you read on the internet to fix it. And all of those diets like Whole30 and Paleo and Keto and all that stuff, they're not individualized to you. So they help people lose weight. I'll give them that. But do they help people be healthier? Not always. Sometimes, but not always. They're not right for everyone because you're a unique individual. So at this point in time in my story, um, I'm thinking like that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take this course that I found on the internet and um, you know work on this and I'm not gonna go on birth control and if it happens it happens right and most people at some point in their fertility years when they're thinking about having kids they do this they go for a year or so and they say if it happens it happens right we're not trying we're not not trying um, so I felt like I was within my rights to do that because up to this point, nobody had acted like it was a huge deal if we wanted to try to try for kids. Um, so I guess about a year passed and through, during that time, a lot was going on. And um, towards the end of that year, I decided to leave my job and enroll in a master's program for nutrition because I decided I wanted to be a nutritionist. I was so interested in this stuff by that point. I had been doing it for several years and I found it fascinating and I wanted to learn as much as I could, um, mostly to help myself. Um, that was the original goal. So I left my job and very soon after, very, very soon after, I, um, I had actually already been bleeding at that point. My job was very stressful, especially at the end. And so I wasn't taking like the greatest care of myself um, around that time. Like I, um, you know, I would go out with friends and we would like go out and have alcohol, you know, quite a bit during the week and stuff like that. And so I was just like not in the greatest place. Um, so I do recall that I believe I started kind of having a period sometime in there. But I didn't think much of it because I always had irregular periods. And this one was like I had the period and then it kind of just like never stopped. It was like spotting, continuous spotting. And there were days where I where there was no spotting and then it would come back. And I, I always just kept thinking like, oh, it's about to end. It's about to end. And the time got away from me really um, because I was going through all this change. So the time really got away from me. I really didn't notice what was going on until one day... Um, I think it was my brother said that I was looking pale and I thought about it and I was like 
yeah, you know, I've been bleeding for a while. And I kind of did the math and I was like, gosh, it's been like maybe two months that I've been spotting like this. And don't get me wrong, it wasn't like heavy bleeding or period bleeding. It was like very light spotting. So I really just thought it was my weird wacky hormones or something. Um, but I thought, you know, just to be safe, I'll go to the OB. Um, and this time I went to a different OB because I had been um, not so happy with my previous one. So I went to this different OB and immediately she knew something was wrong with me. She did an ultrasound and right away she saw that my lining was super thick. And the way she described it to me was that basically my uterus was full um, with lining. And so it was just like coming out slowly because it just had nowhere to go, um, which is so disgusting, you know, but um, I had no idea. So I always tell my story, especially this part, because I had no idea. I wasn't in pain. Um, I was somewhat tired, but not any more tired than anyone else would be during a time of big transition. Um, I wasn't like weak or, you know, I was a little pale, but I wasn't like, I mean, you can see me if you're watching me on YouTube, like I'm, I'm pale, like that's just how I am. Um, so, but I didn't feel anemic or anything like that. I had no idea that anything was like really wrong until I counted up the days and realized it had been so long. So, um, at that point we did another biopsy, dramatic again, and it came back that I had endometrial cancer. It was super early, it was caught very early. So, you know, um, the conclusion of that story is that I was treated, I was able to preserve my fertility. Um, later on, we went on to have our son through IVF. And then just a couple of months ago, I had a little recurrence again and decided to have everything taken out because I was sick of, um, you know, worrying about those organs just sitting around in there. So I had everything taken out to reduce my risk of having another recurrence. But um, that's my story about how I developed endometrial cancer. And um, I think it's important for us as young women to tell these stories because so many women that I've talked to with PCOS as clients they don't take it seriously that they're not having regular periods. And don't get me wrong, the chances of things developing into endometrial cancer are not high. There's, you know, there's a slim chance, but there's enough chance that it's worth paying attention and being careful, especially if you have other risk factors. Um, but even if you don't, because I didn't, and um, so even if you don't, it's really important to make sure that you're regularly having a bleed. Um, it's not a good thing that you're not bleeding. It's not an okay, whatever, like laugh it off, it's no big deal thing. It's a big thing for your body to not bleed regularly. Even if it never develops into cancer, it's still bad for your body to have all that estrogen and not enough um, progesterone. It can lead to stuff like insomnia, um, anxiety, things like that. So. For your quality of life, it's important to have a bleed. Oh, we don't realize how important bleeding is as women to our overall health, um, but it definitely is. And not just bleeding as a withdrawal, but bleeding with the help of progesterone. So if you're not making progesterone on your own, if you've gone a little while without having a period, I highly recommend, first of all, that you get a good OB who takes that seriously and you know that you take what they prescribe that you you know if they prescribe you provera to induce a bleed don't think that you're above that because it's a synthetic and not take it like take the provera um you need it 
So um, let's talk about how diet can um, play into all this. There is a basis for diet helping with estrogen dominance. So it does play a big role. It's not the end all be all for everyone. Um, diet's not necessarily, not necessarily gonna be like the cure or if you already have uh, endometrial cancer, like you're not gonna take that away by just diet alone, right? At a certain point, the body gets out of control to where inputs like diet and supplements are not gonna make as much of a difference as they would have if they were done preventatively, which is really the point. We should always be eating preventatively. Um, but there are some things that, that diet plays a big role in with, with estrogen dominance that we can start paying attention to now. So the first thing is that uh, plastics in our environment. We don't think about like plastic containers and, and cups and things like that as being part of our diet, but really the technical definition of nutrition is anything that you take in through the mouth. So um, that includes um, water, uh, things you drink, and um, it also includes, you know, the chemicals that you get from something, a utensil that you're eating out of. So a plastic tray or a cup or whatever it may be. Because of those xenoestrogens and the fact that plastic is so pervasive in our society, if there's one big thing that you can do to help yourself um, with your environmental toxicity, it's to get rid of as much plastic as you can. So in your house, um, try to avoid eating out where they're going to be using, putting things in plastic. Um, the biggest risk factor is when plastic is heated up. So, you know, frozen dinners and things like that that heat up in plastic containers. Um, you know, even though like, for example, at the grocery store here, you can get these like little pre-made meals and they're pretty healthy like it's like salmon and broccoli um, that's great but take it out of that container to cook it because it's made to be cooked in the little plastic container not to mention that um, in general we need to cut back on our use of plastics and I'm guilty of this as well um, you know I mean I've got, my supplements are all come in plastic bottles that's just kind of the world that we live in but if we can do our part for the environment as much as possible within the limitations that we have I think it's important so um, try to avoid plastic for things that you're eating out of and drinking out of um, the other thing to look out for is sugar sugar is the biggest thing because sugar increases the um, sugar is the food for estrogen so it increases the production of aromatase which is the um, substrate for testosterone and uh, estrogen so that's why in women with PCOS you know you see like excess testosterone and excess estrogen because there's just a lot of aromatase activity happening so um, sugar is the food for that it fuels that um, so the biggest thing that you can do is cut back on sugars. And that doesn't necessarily mean carbs, and I'll explain why. Um, but it does mean added sugar. Um, so desserts, you really, really need to cut back there. You need to cut back on sweet drinks and um, things like that. That's good for your overall health, but it's really important for your estrogen health. So cutting sugar is important. Um, but the reason I say that doesn't necessarily mean no carbs because um, I see a lot of women going on keto diets which 
I'm not huge fans of unless they're the kind of keto diet that's like high in vegetable content because there are some like that. Um, but if it's the kind of keto diet where it's like, okay, you eat like meat and cheese and fats and bacon and eggs and all that stuff and that's pretty much all you eat and uh, you eat a lot of fats and you're really not eating like a lot of vegetables or fruit because you're afraid of the carbs in them, that's where that can be very damaging for gut health, very damaging for gut health and um, just not good for you long term. It's okay for a little while, but it's not good for you long term. And the reason for that is because fiber is, first of all, the food for good bacteria. And we need good bacteria in order to not produce excessive estrogens and in order to metabolize and get rid of those extra estrogens. Um, fiber also helps these the estrogen bind to the stool and get out of the system. Um, so it's very important for uh, that stool to be out and get in moving and if you're not eating enough fiber um, that's not going to be happening in a healthy way if you're only pooping because you drink coffee um, you know that's not good either so we want the fiber from cruciferous vegetables especially are known for um, helping to reduce estrogen overload uh, things like broccoli cauliflower brussels sprouts foods like that they produce a, a component called DIM, which you can find as a supplement as well, but it's always better to get a lot from food and then add a supplement rather than just trying to do the supplement and not doing the food part. Um, fruit also has those beneficial fibers and both of those fruits and vegetables have a lot of antioxidants, polyphenols, and other nutrients that have been shown to play a role in um, reducing your risk for chronic disease and, and stuff like that. So. There's definitely no reason to avoid either of them. You know, don't go crazy with fruit. Like I like people to limit fruit a little bit, but those are things to look at. Other things are alcohol. So alcohol increases aromatase production as well. So sugar and alcohol are the two things that you really ought to limit or cut out completely if you're trying to um, watch your fertility health and especially if you're trying to conceive, it's, it's important. Um, so alcohol messes with a lot of different things. Now, I'm not opposed to having some alcohol here and there. You know, I love a good glass of wine like anyone else, but it's that regular consumption of it um, or, you know, periods of binge drinking that really are, are, are problematic. So you don't want to have a glass of wine every day. As much as you might read that that's healthy for you and, and what have you, um, you know, I just don't find that to be true for fertility in particular. And um, I haven't seen that to be true in my practice either, working with women of all ages. And almost everyone I work with loves wine. So it's, it's, it's sad. Um, it's a sad thing that they have to give up for a while. But it definitely doesn't help with anything. So um, I would avoid it. And um, know your signs and symptoms of this. So, you know, my big symptom was, um, first of all, irregular periods, long periods of not bleeding. But then, um, you know, the sign that I definitely had cancer was that constant spotting. So a lot of women will have experiences like that where they just bleed and bleed and they just continue to bleed for, you know, a month or some women let it go longer. You know, if you've been bleeding for longer than, um, longer than normal, longer than a week, um, maybe two weeks max, like you probably need to go get checked out. Um, 
advocate for yourself. Some doctors will not take you seriously because you're young and they will not want to do an ultrasound um, or a biopsy. But I think it's within your rights to ask your health provider to take good care of you or else to find a different health provider. So um, you can always ask for, you know, like a transvaginal ultrasound to look at the lining so you can, so they can tell you what the thickness is. Um, But talk to your doctor because they should know your health history and they should know what's normal for you and what's not normal for you. So it's important to talk to them and have them on your team as well, not to work against them, but to work with them. Regular bleeding, spotting pain. If you're post-menopause or perimenopausal, you know, those can be signs of perimenopause. If you're post-menopause and you're having bleeding, get checked out. Um, But if you're perimenopausal or you're not sure, like I know there's that time frame where you're like, wait, am I menopause? Oh, wait, I'm not. Um, You know, that's a time when I think women are at somewhat of a higher risk. So I would, you know, go have your regular checkups and if anything's unusual, unusual bleeding for you. I would go and and have it looked at. So um, we're running on 53 minutes with this podcast, guys. I can really ramble, can't I? Um, I don't know if anybody knows this, but I was on the speech and debate team in college. So just saying, I don't know if you can tell because I can do an expository speech for like ages. Um, It's ingrained, but I'm going to close it up now with that. So if you have questions for the podcast, nutrition questions, fertility questions, whatever it may be, please send me an email. Uh, The email address is anamberadaypodcast at gmail.com. I would be happy to answer them on the air. Um, If you have, you know, just any like comments or things like that, you know, if you're going through this stuff too, I'd love to hear from you. And um, don't forget to also look up if you're if you have been through IVF and you're an IVF mom. I have a support group um, for that, and um, other places where you can follow me and keep up with what I'm doing and what I'm talking about with fertility and nutrition. So you look in the um, description box and you'll see the links for all that stuff. Thanks for listening to me, everybody, and I hope you have a really good weekend. Bye. something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both i'd love it if you would leave me an itunes review and share this with a friend if this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer there is a google form that you can use to ask me any question you want and i might answer it here on the podcast i do it all the time and i would love to hear from you thanks so much for listening see you next time